News, weather, traffic, money, politics, big interviews, and bold opinions. It's what's happening right now. This is Mornings with Simi. You know, the sports world doesn't always get dragged into worldwide political issues, but when it does happen, we all see, read, hear about it. Take the case of the legal battle between tennis star Novak Djokovic and the Australian government. It wasn't just about a visa mishap or filling out the form incorrectly. It was about COVID and rules and vaccination and politics. So why has this case in particular struck such a chord around the world? We're joining us now for more on this is Carrie Bowman, a professor in bioethics and global health at the University of Toronto. Carrie, thanks for being with us. Happy to do so. Why is it that you think this, for some reason, this case has become, I don't know, like emblematic or symbolic of a, of a much bigger issue? Well, you know, it's hard to know, but I mean, it's just the profile of the event itself is so high. And then Djokovic being, you know, such an accomplished athlete. Um, and, you know, it, it does tell us as well that bureaucracy is a terrible way to deal with pandemic. And most of us, you know, most of our nations are dealing with pandemic th- through bureaucracy. So, and it polarized people. And, and look, I'd love to have a fixed opinion as to, you know, this has led to this, but it, it's hard to say. You know, some people would say that what this has done is really, really deepened and emboldened anti-vaxxers and really shown them that this, the system is ridiculous. Others would say not. Others would say, you know, Australia held their ground and, uh, you know, people are just going to have to recognize that there's no exceptions to anybody. And so the division continues on this. Are people, look, what I, are, people yeah, taking, are people taking what they want from this too, Carrie? Because yes. I think some people <laughs> are thinking, oh, this, this is good because it means that athletes are no longer getting special treatment. So everybody has a reason for getting involved in this. It is. And, you know, sometimes these kind of cases, when they hit profile and, and in, you know, generate conversations, we're all a little further ahead because we've all thought a little more deeply about something, but not this time. Or I don't see it if we're further ahead. I think we're worse off this time. I think exactly, as you've just commented, I, I, I think it's kind of hardened our positions on both sides. And, you know, it, it hasn't really taken us anywhere. You know, I, I do think in fairness to Djokovic, though, you know, a system where you get all the way to Australia, and how far is Australia? I mean, for most people living in Western countries, Australia is really far. Um, and then find out, well, no, that's not really the interpretation. And then, yes, it is. And then, no, it's not. And look, he did fill out his forms, perhaps incorrectly. Uh, you know, I, I travel all over the world. And boy, I, I suspect the amount of times I filled out my forms incorrectly is significant. So, you know, I don't know how much you can really hold that against him. I'm not even sure he was filling it out. I think one of his assistants may have been. So, so really, really tough stuff. But it does call into question, why don't, two, two years plus plus into this pandemic, why don't we have global standards on this? And um, it, it's particularly in relation to athletes. I, I would say from an ethical point of view, athletes have to be held to the same standards as everyone else. I would also say as role models, most of us can't even imagine uh, the power of athletes as role models. Uh, you know, it is really, really powerful. And, and that's, what, that's why it is so important. But look, some people are saying we're not going to have international standards. These sports are fundamentally different and there's cultural differences. And the pandemic is so politicized that we'll probably never have international standards. So, 
you know, where does that leave us? It, it's kind of an ambiguous situation. It really is. But I just don't understand why this wasn't thought of before, because now you hear, you know, in France, they're talking about doing something similar to the French Open. So, you know, he might not be able to go to the French Open. And I'm thinking, did they not see this coming? Like, did they not plan ahead for something? like? No, I, th- I feel like sports, has, the sports world has been kind of caught off guard by this. Well, and they shouldn't be. They shouldn't be. So as much as some people would argue we can't have international standards, I, I'm not even sure that's true, by the way. And, that, you know, sports isn't really my, you know, it's not an area I really study. But we, although we may not have international standards, boy, oh, boy, we can do a lot better than this. And, you know, what is not lost on people is that this is intense bureaucracy. And, you know, the system is just this hunk of machinery that runs itself, irrespective of whether it's logical or not. And, you know, I, in my opinion, I think Australia actually came out of this looking kind of bad yet again on, on a few fronts. Um, I thought it made them look very inconsistent and bureaucratic. And um, I mean, that's only my opinion. I, other people have different views on this. So, but you're right. We can do better than this. And the fact that we're now just starting to figure out what, what, what are we going to do about France? Like, really? After two years, you're exactly right. We've got to improve. We have to have, you know, higher... Uh, buy-in. And boy, you know, we, we need consistency. And and again, you can't have a situation where you fly all the way to Australia on the assumption that you meet a category and then say, well, actually, you don't. I mean, that's just too much. Yeah, that's, uh, I guess, the part two here. So when you talk about international athletes, though, is it the bigger the name, the more, I guess, the stakes are involved here? I mean, it's an election year in Australia, too, right? That obviously politics had a lot to do with this. Politics had an awful lot to do with it, and I, you know, I used to live in Australia, and I and I love Australia. I'm not I'm not being overly critical, but I I, I think it's fairly indicative of the way Australian politics often works, actually, um, and and not you know not in a good way. Um, so, yeah, I think it had a lot to do with it. But the, you're exactly right. The fact that we're still trying to figure this out for France and the future, because you know this pandemic, you know the pandemic will hopefully improve. But, you know, all indications are we're living with COVID for a long time, and we have to figure this out. So although some people say we can't have global standards, I think we have to strive for it. And if we can't have them, we need some really good reasons why. Um, now, you know, China this morning is telling us that, or I don't know this morning, but in the last 24 hours is, is, is telling us that their threshold for acceptance at the Olympics is going to be quite high, meaning that as they test for covid that threshold will be very high, higher than Canadian standards. So, you know, it can then put athletes in a position where if they previously had COVID, and look, in this country, how many people have previously had Omicron? I live in downtown Toronto, and every second person has had Omicron over the Christmas holidays. Um, And I think it's true right over the country. So, you know, we're going to have more trouble with that, right? Right. Do we have fair standards? And and even that's inconsistent. Should athletes be held to some kind of different standard? No, I don't think, you know, I, I, I think, again, we need global standards. And I would argue that, you know, Canada, the U.S., and Europe, uh, the, the kind of standards we're looking at as to whether you're negative for COVID. And, and when you're clearly, you have recovered from it, that is an acceptable standard. I think China's kind of caught, you know, they're being so heavily criticized, they're trying to show the world that they have the highest standard possible, but, you know, again, we've got an inconsistency on this. And there's already so much tension with China that it's going to it's going to be much different than Australia. People are going to think the worst of both sides. It, I, and I really hope they figure this one out, uh, you know, very quickly. 
it's amazing to me again in talking about the Olympics in China too, is that all of a sudden, and I put that in air quotes, all of a sudden all these issues are coming up. And how did they not think this was going to happen from the moment that the Olympics were awarded there? Oh, of course, of course. And you know what, you, you, name, you name a sports event and you can see on the horizon there's going to be challenges. Even if the pandemic gets better, it's not going to go away. Well, it's going to go away, hopefully, but not for a while. So I, I and I, I'm again, I, you know, I'm kind of with you and like, you know, really, we, we really haven't settled this yet. But what cannot be lost in this is the power and the role model of athletes, even if they themselves have very little interest in the pandemic or vaccination. It's actually not of any great interest to them. They are still powerful role models in a way that most of us can't even begin to understand. I think that's what it comes down to. Carrie, thank you very much. You're welcome. Take care. You too. Carrie Bowman's a professor in bioethics and global health at the University of Toronto, talking about the power of athletes and then having it all get mixed up in COVID and politics and bureaucracy, which we've seen with Novak Djokovic. But it should have just the beginning, I think, of that story. That story is going to continue. This is Mornings with Simi. Well, it sounds like this is not going over very well. Gyms, bars, they've all been closed indefinitely ahead of the briefing that will come at 1.30 this afternoon with health officials and our update on the latest of what's going on with COVID-19. That's a lot of businesses who were thinking maybe there was some hope at the light at the end of the tunnel, something like that. So let's find out how this is going over. Joining us now is Jeff Guignard, who's the Executive Director at the Alliance of Beverage Licensees. Good morning, Jeff. Good morning, Simi. Were you caught off guard by that yesterday? Well, you know what's frustrating about this? And, you know, we've been doing this for you know, months and months and months and months now, right? That um, the government quietly posted an update to the orders on, online last night. And the reason they had to do that was technically the orders in place expired at midnight. They're not making announcements on whether those restrictions are actually going to be extended or changed until today. So we would have ended up in this weird period where there were no orders. So they posted the orders online last night, creating massive confusion and frustration in the industry. They could have just held the press conference yesterday when it would have cleaned up a lot of things for industry because now everybody is not just, you know, waiting with bated breath to find out what's happening. They're frustrated and confused as well, right? So it's, it's a bit of a screw up. Yeah. So previous health orders then, Jeff, had they been indefinite orders or did they have these definitive closure dates on them and then they were extended with enough notice? Typically, they have um, an expiration date on all of them. Extending them indefinitely is, is pretty rare. Uh, I haven't seen them do that throughout the pandemic. And I, I don't think the order that's up there now is intended to ex- be extended indefinitely. I, I mean, I keep telling everyone and was on the phone with folks last night in our industry, just wait until we actually hear from Dr. Henry today just to find out what she wants to do. Uh, I think they were just trying to ensure that they're, you know, they didn't have a situation where the orders had technically expired on the website, right? Um, but, you know, every time we come up to an expiration day for one of these orders, uh, industry is always trying to figure out what to do, right? I mean, people are making business decisions. We're trying to figure out whether to hire our staff back and staff are trying to figure out whether they're working. Uh, we're trying to figure out whether we should be ordering additional products. All the complexities go into your business. It's impossible to plan when you just wait and let deadlines expire or you just creep up to them without letting folks know. So. We'll find out in a few hours. Uh, I'm being briefed by government this morning, but this, this could have been a lot simpler. And what have the last few weeks with these measures in place been like for, what have you been hearing from businesses? Yeah, I'll be honest with you. It's been really tough out there. Um, I mean, a lot of folks are understandably quite nervous about the Omicron variant. So some people are just staying home. Completely respect that. 
One of the challenges we've had, though, is December is typically our most profitable time of the year. It's the busiest time. Every you know, with holiday parties, we weren't able to do that uh, in a normal way this year. So, what ended up happening is January, February is our, our slowest month always. It's additionally slower, and we didn't get enough revenue in, in December to help carry us through. So, business is down probably about forty to fifty percent across the board. Um, so, if you've got a favorite neighborhood pub or restaurant out there, I'd, I'd pop in and see them sooner rather than later. Yeah, what's happened, do you think, over the pandemic, right? Because in the beginning, the first year, year and a half, I think people were like, oh, we have to make sure that we keep eating out or ordering out and doing all that. Has some mm-hmm. of that fallen by the wayside, do you think, Jeff? Well, everyone's tired of the, the protocol of the pandemic and trying to do the right thing, right? So, I mean, I think that, that customer habits are shifting a bit. Um, we've also seen a large growth in just people ordering in, people staying at home and, um, you know, getting some takeout or delivery. And, you know, that, that's great. That helps keep our kitchens open. Uh, unfortunately for the businesses, though, when you're ordering from you know one of those third-party delivery companies like Uber or Skip the Dishes or DoorDash, uh, they they charge us and the restaurants and pubs a really large fee, uh, so that uh, it's not really profitable for us to to do it that way. So it's it's um, a bigger piece of our business and it's helpful, but it is not the answer at all. The answer is is getting back to some sense of normal, which you know we're we're all on the same page about our ultimate goals here, right? And getting through this, and getting everyone vaccinated. Um, but it's uh, yeah, it's a tough business model out there right now. Yeah, how much longer do you think can some businesses hang in there? When will we start to really see the effects of this? You're seeing it already. Uh, it's just not as obvious as you would notice, right? So we've already lost about 10 or 15% of the industry. And there's probably another 10 uh, percent or so that are, that are teetering on the edge every single month. And uh, I, I was speaking to an owner just the other day, Who's, uh, he has no idea how he's going to make it. He's just kind of doing month by month and, and trying to scrape up enough revenue to try and keep his doors open. Uh, and that story is all too common across the province right now. And, and that's not the fault of public health voters specifically. That's that's a number of, of factors. But a lack of confusion and a lack of certainty about planning your business certainly doesn't help that situation. Right. You said you have a meeting this morning with health officials then. Do you expect to hear mm-hmm. about what's going to happen over the next little while? Yes, they're going to be outlining for us uh, what what the plans are. I mean, I, and honestly, we, we don't know yet. Um, it seems reasonable that we're you know in the middle of the peak or about to hit the peak for the Omicron variant. That most protocols are going to stay relatively the same. Uh, I do think we've learned a lot in the last couple of weeks, though, about how we can continue to have the right COVID safety plans in place. Uh, and, and remember, I mean, and for restaurants and pubs, you're back to you know two meters to table, six feet apart. I mean, these are the kind of right. rules we've been operating under for a while, so we we know how to do that safely. Uh, I think we can do the same thing with other businesses, with nightclubs and with gyms and et cetera. And so I, I hope that um, there's a bit of logic brought into this now that we've got more experience at the Omicron variant, but we'll, we'll find out this morning what's right. announced. Yeah, can you give me an idea then at that uh, meetings like this, and I'm sure you've had many with officials mm-hmm. like hearing about restrictions, are you able to voice your concern and just say, listen, the way that happened yesterday, that was not good? Well, we've already spoken to government about that. Um, and we, it will say that the government has been great at giving us access to decision makers and to senior bureaucrats so we can have these conversations with them. It's not perfect. I mean, yesterday's a good example of that. We we didn't get to speak with them until after the the temporary order was posted online. Um, and in this morning's meeting, it's uh, it's a larger meeting of a bunch of industry associations where government is trying to help get everybody up to speed. So yeah, you can interact with them, but it's um, you know it's a big a big meeting with a lot of folks involved. So it's not always the, the most productive discussion. Right. So what is the sense that you get then from everything you've heard, Jeff, about the way this is going to go today? So 
there's a lot of frustration as always, right? When we get up to the deadline and pass the deadline, pe- people start focusing on that. Like, why, why didn't we just do this yesterday? So we could have provided notice to industry, right? Or how come we didn't know on Friday what our plan was for the course of this week? Um, and I think you'll see a lot of other industries are, you know, there's fundamental questions you have and you, you know, the, the fitness industry is a really good example of it. Um, they don't understand why they're continuing to be overclosed. When you think about it, you know, restaurants and pubs, we were under these sorts of orders, you know, the six feet of um, uh, groups of six to a table and two meters distance. We, we did that earlier in the pandemic. Earlier in the pandemic, the fitness industry could have some safety plans in place to still be able to operate. They were just shut down during this period. So at some point, you're like, well, I don't understand why this is open and why this is open. Why people can go to malls, but you can't go to, um, you know, a fitness center. So I think you, there's a lot of questions like that that come up in these meetings. Um, at the end of the day, though, what I think we all try and remember and you know, take a deep breath, put your frustrations aside. We all have the same goal to get folks vaccinated and get out of this pandemic as quickly as possible. Uh, and so I think we, we try and temper our, our frustrations with that. All right. That's good advice. Jeff, thank you so much for your time. My pleasure. Have a great morning. You too. That's Jeff Guinard, who's the executive director of the Alliance of Beverage Licensees. This morning, we'll head into a meeting to hear with health officials and government officials about you know, the restrictions, what's coming, what's happening. And of course, we'll all be updated at 1.30 this afternoon. Jeff said it there, though, that the fitness industry is a good example of the confusion and, and the concern and that an industry that has really been suffering as a result of the restrictions. This is Mornings with Simi. Tough being in the fitness industry right now in BC, especially with the definite closure and the continuation of those health officials and orders that came yesterday. To talk more about that now, we're joined by Anna Lubanowski, who's the owner of Emerge Fitness Studio. Anna, thanks for being here. Oh, thanks so much for having me on, Simi. Good morning. Good morning. What have the last 48 hours been like for you? Uh, well, probably the same as for every other gym owner in the Lower Mainland, well, all of BC, uh, yeah, pins and needles. You know, it, you just have no idea. You're trying to stay positive, but man, oh man, if this could go in any number of different directions and it's, it's hard, it's hard right. to be positive for sure. So yeah. had you been, I know there, there was a concern about this kind of loophole, right? Where the orders technically had expired before they could announce mm-hmm. the new ones. What were you planning to do? Were you planning to open? Absolutely. Yeah. We, we had everything in place. We had uh, all of our trainers lined up. We had classes already filled up. We had uh, clients just, you know, couldn't wait you know a lot of them were messaging us saying hey I can't believe it like the day is almost here it seems like we've been waiting for eternity you know um so yeah everything was ready to go um assuming that 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 was going to be the case yeah so you didn't have any indication that this was just like things were going to be extended nothing had actually (laughs) changed no absolutely nothing and and I think that has to be one of the biggest complaints and issues with this whole uh, uh, process is we listen to the news that that is the only way that we find out anything's happening. Uh, we, we've had zero communication from, from the government or uh, anybody, you know, indicating any kind of an idea of what might be coming. So super frustrating. I, I think they've done a really poor job of, of communicating with the industry as a whole. What what was demand like, Anna? Were people like ready to come back to the gym? Oh yeah, <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Not only were our trainers ready, um, you know, we're in the business to help people, and and sitting around um, not being able to do a healthy thing, 
and supporting our, our membership. Do you know what the mental health aspect of all this is? It's it's unbelievable. We've, I can show you messages where people have said, you know what, I didn't realize how much I needed this until I couldn't have it. You know, there, there's a social component, obviously, um, but the, the mental health aspect at a time like this, at the darkest time of the year, uh, with all the stresses from, from the pandemic, um, yeah, people need this and they were ready to come back. So what, what do you do now? Are you just waiting to find out this afternoon? Have you been able to say, hey, where's the communication on this? Yeah, I mean, we literally have to wait. Uh, I'll be listening to NW to see what, um, what the government actually comes out and says. Uh, we literally have no indication. Nothing? None whatsoever. Like nothing from nope. workers, like WorkSafe BC, nothing? Oh, gosh, no, no, nothing. Um, even the provincial health office, I mean, we, we have uh, officers, you know, throughout the, the province that are supposed to be, you know, in communication with you. We've never received anything. In, in the very early stages of the pandemic, there was the odd email that said, you know, you set up your protocols, all that kind of stuff. That ended probably by, you know, middle of last year, right. or 2020, I should say. So, no, there's been nothing. And how do you run a business like that? <laughs> uh, yeah, exactly. Um, you know, it, it's stressful, doesn't even begin to cover it. Stress, frustration, we still have bills to pay, you know, um, and that's the biggest thing. You know, I know the government came out with this, you know, current uh, offering of, of peanuts, literally peanuts. I don't, you know, we don't want the handouts. We want to be open. We want to be there serving our membership and doing what we need to do. Uh, Those don't cover any kind of bills. Have you you been able to kind of modify things in order to comply with COVID restrictions? Like obviously you can't have a whole bunch of people in there. So what have you been doing to deal with COVID and Omicron? Oh, yeah. Well, we are a 1,500 square foot facility. We have eight ladies. I mean, I don't know what more we can do. We are we have more than what the requirement for spacing is. Uh, everybody has their own equipment, so we had to buy more equipment. Uh, we actually had to move stuff out of the way to create more floor space. We've had to increase uh, the cleanings. I mean, we've done every gym has done everything that's been asked of them. We actually couldn't have certain members come in because they weren't vaccinated. So not only are you at a lower capacity, you now can't have some people in because of the, you know, vaccine restrictions. Um, it, it's it's been so challenging. Uh, I can't even begin to describe it. it. It's been hard, very hard. It's taken a toll on on our mental health. Every owner that I've talked to. Um, you know, they're in debt up to their eyeballs, you know, credit cards are maxed, lines of credit are maxed because you're trying to stay afloat when there's no help, no information, no communication. Oh, Anna. All right. Well, listen, thanks for telling us your story and best of luck. Okay. Thank you so much. I hope we have some good news this afternoon. I hope so for your sake too, but we'll find out and keep listening right here for the latest on that. That's Anna Ludwanowski, who's the owner of Emerge Fitness Studio talking about how gyms have been just dealt blow after blow after blow now that health orders have been extended indefinitely. Update coming at 1.30 this afternoon. Yes, you will hear it live. This is Mornings with Simi. 
Well, if you've tried to find childcare or daycare in the last, well, 10 years, 20 years, you know how difficult and challenging it can be. But now we're hearing about more investment in childcare, which only works, though, if you have the people to staff all those daycares. Well, British Columbians who are looking to build a career perhaps in childcare might have a little more luck now. The government has announced the addition of more than 140 early childhood educator seats at eight public post-secondary institutions throughout the province. Let's talk more about this now. Joining us is Bowen Ma, who's the BC Minister of State for Infrastructure and the NDP MLA for North Vancouver, Lonsdale. Thanks for being with us. Good morning, Simi. What kind of a difference will this make, do you think? Well, it makes a huge difference. And we have to remember as well that the 147 early childhood educator seats that we announced this week actually builds on over a thousand additional student training spaces that we funded since 2018. So we're talking about 1,150 early childhood educator seats across the province that are going to be graduating up to 1,150 early childhood educators every single year moving forward. Okay, so what has the demand been like for those spots? Has there been a waiting list? Were there way too many people applying? There are so many people who are interested in getting into this field, uh, but we know that there are some barriers. Some of those barriers might be opportunities and access to education. And the other challenge, one major challenge, is actually wages. Early childhood educators have not been paid very well historically, and that's why our government has also been investing in wage increases. Uh, Every early childhood educator across the province currently is uh, eligible for an additional $2 an hour wage increase. And by March, we're going to be doubling that to additional $4. So we're talking about a median wage uh, medium wage for early childhood educators across the province of at least $25 an hour. We believe that this is going to go a long way to helping attract uh, people into this field. Right. So you're anticipating that more people will want to get into this field. I think that a lot of people do. uh, And we're seeing that these spaces are being filled. So where will this be happening then? Where will these spaces be available? So the most recent increase in spaces, the 147, are primarily in the north and the Kootenays. However, the previous thousand spaces have been in in the lower mainland as well. Out here on the North Shore, for instance, Capilano University has an incredible program and they have received uh, an additional 79 spaces a while ago. So they're already uh, graduating more and more early childhood educators every single year. We're seeing increases at Langara College. UBC, University of the Fraser Valley, and we know that this isn't the end of our work either. Over the next several years, we, ex- we anticipate that there will be 9,000 openings for early childhood educators in the coming years. And so we've got a lot of work to do. In addition to these spaces that we're increasing, we're also pursuing uh, credential upgrades or uh, transfers for internationally trained equivalents as well. We're going to need a really large early childhood educator um, workforce. Uh, we need people who are able to give quality childcare education uh, in order to actually meet our vision of a universal childcare program here in BC. Right. It sounds like what you're doing is kind of building out the system. So less of a reliance on, you know, the family run daycare down the street that you just were able to get access to. And you seem to want like a system in place where everything is kind of regulated. So what we're looking to do is ensure that 
when somebody goes out or when a parent seeks out childcare, that they're actually, that they're confident they're able to get safe, high quality care for their child. This isn't just day, this isn't just um, like a child. What is it? Uh, pardon me. Uh, pff, the term, the term escapes me, but it's not just, daycare, it's early childhood education. We're talking about a really high quality program for kids. And we are uh, focused on building a licensed system. So you are right. But that that's, that being said, note that a lot of those family daycares are able to become licensed. Right. So is that part of the process? Then you're saying, hey, listen, if you've been doing a daycare, we're going to find a way for you to be incorporated into the system. Yes, absolutely. And there have been grants, startup grants to help those family-run uh, daycares that haven't been licensed before to become licensed. Uh, we're providing more early childhood education, training opportunities, grants, and so forth. So when does this all take effect? So this work has been underway since 2018, and these additional 147 ECE seats will, I, I believe that they actually come online within the next month or so, but the previous 1,000 seats are already operating. The affordable childcare benefit that a lot of families of lower and middle income have been accessing have been, has been running since 2018. The child care fee reduction initiative has been running since 2018. The wage enhancements have been getting rolled out over the last many years. What we're seeing is that despite the challenges that this province and the world has faced around pandemics, um, despite the challenges that BC has faced around flooding and storms, wildfires, all these states of emergency, we're still working on those issues that British Columbians care about and access to high quality, safe, accessible and affordable childcare is one of the top issues that a lot of British Columbians come to us about. So we're still working on that now. Do you think it's getting easier for people to find daycare? Because that's always been an issue, right? People putting their names on lists, even when they're pregnant. Absolutely. It is so challenging for families to access childcare. But coming back to my local community here in North Vancouver, um, over the last two and a half years, these investments into building 26,000 additional licensed childcare spaces has meant over 1,300 new spaces on the North Shore alone. And that is a lot of families that have been able to access, even just in my community, a lot of families that have been able to access childcare, whereas three years ago, they would have been on that wait list for a heck of a long longer. All right, we'll see what happens. Uh, thank you so much for your time this morning. Thank you so much. Take care. Bowen Ma is the BC Minister of State for Infrastructure talking about the government's new plan. They're funding an additional uh, almost 100, 147, I guess, early childhood educator seats at eight public post-secondary institutions. Now, the goal here is to train more early childhood educators so you can get them you know, jobs at daycares and child care centers. I'd love to hear from parents on this too, though. Has the last, has the last couple of years, like all these investments in childcare, resulted in you being able to find childcare or daycare more easily? What has it done for you, if anything? Simi at cknw.com. This is Mornings with Simi. Came as a surprise yesterday when the provincial government announced that all school staff, so anybody who works in a school setting, must disclose their COVID-19 vaccination status. So 
What they're saying is vaccinations are not required to work in school, but school districts have been given the ability to implement a vaccine mandate if needed. So this was kind of posted online, took a lot of people off guard. Let's find out how teachers feel about it. Joining us now is Terry Mooring, president of the BC Teachers Federation. Thank you for being here. Thanks for having me, Simi. Were you surprised by this? Very surprised. Um, We typically do get a heads up when orders are going to be issued, and usually there's some explanation around them. That didn't happen yesterday, unfortunately. And the, you know, an unfortunate consequence, I guess, of that is that, you know, we already have a high level of concern amongst both teachers, support staff, and families about, you know, the safety of schools and how, you know, we're going to prevent functional closure. So it's not helpful to have something like this just dropped on a Monday afternoon without any explanation. Is there a concern, though, about disclosing vaccination status? Like, are there a lot of teachers who aren't vaccinated? Well, we have a high level of vaccination amongst teachers, um, but, you know, disclosing vaccine status is part of the steps that a district would take when they're going to implement a vaccine mandate. And so, you know, of course, uh, Delta and Revelstoke have made that decision, and so they'll be embarking in the process of determining um, vaccine status amongst staff. And there's a process, a framework that government has laid out that we were a part of developing in terms of what those steps are. We also have an agreement with the Employers Association about what this will look like uh, in in schools. And so those agreements and the framework are in place. Um, The confounding part of this order is what it's intended to do. So if it's intended to uh, pave the way for vaccine mandates um, if in parts of the province, then why not just issue a vaccine mandate order, uh, which is what we've actually been calling for, because we would rather see a provincial mandate than, you know, a district-by-district approach. Um, and so so that's the strange thing about it. Right. Well, why do you think a provincial mandate would be better than going district-by-district? It would just be so much more straightforward. It would treat all teachers the same, regardless of where they lived in the province. Um, And, you know, it it just makes sense. It would be much easier to implement. Um, We already have some provincial agreements in place. And so it would make sense to do that. This order um, gives the rights to medical health officers to go to a district and ask them to to determine vaccine status among staffs. It doesn't compel that to happen, <clears throat> so it's, it will be up to the medical health or uh, officer whether they want to do this or not. Right. Um, where you know the expectation would be that medical health officers in places of the province where there's low vaccine rates will probably do that. Um, but again, uh, lots of questions in the order. It, it looks like um, the medical health officer could potentially put other provisions in place. And so that's the part where we don't have clarity. Yeah. What kind of questions then do you have about the order? Well, what's the intention? And so is it to put vaccine mandates in place? Um, If so, there's a much easier way to do that. And um, and then what what happens after vaccine status is disclosed? Um, It looks like there are some, you know, the medical health officer could put some measures in place. What are those measures? Um, And so, again, when you already have a really concerned field, um, it doesn't help to drop something into it, like this provincial health order, where the implications are unclear. The other thing the order does in the rationale is it talks about the immediate and urgent need to 
take action to prevent the spread of Omicron in schools. We agree with that. We've been saying that all along. So the, the rationale for this order also supports our call for N95 masks for education staff, boosters for education staff, um, and some, you know, real work to be done on the ventilation systems in the province that aren't up to par, including putting in HEPA filters. Uh, we've also been calling for a dedicated education campaign directed at families to underscore the importance of children wearing masks in schools and the importance of children being vaccinated, because in those areas of the province where we have low vaccination rates, there's also really low vaccination rates amongst the 5 to 11-year-olds and the 12 to 17-year-olds. And so, you know, we're on board with improving school safety, um, but this is not the way um, to, to put in place a provincial order without, you know, information to the field. What do you think this tells us, though, about the concern of what's going on in the schools then? I mean, it's been a week since everybody's back in schools. Do you think this means that there are concerns about what's happening? Well, that's a really good question. And of course, we don't have any information whatsoever about what's happening in schools. We don't know um, the level, the number of COVID cases, the exposure counts. We, there's no provincial tracking either um, that is open to the public, that is, around all the functional closures. So in other words, local health authorities used to post that information and now they're not. And so there's a real dearth of information in terms of what's happening in schools. And so it does lead to speculation, which is not helpful. Um, and so, you know, it, it, you know, certainly the rationale for this order does state that they, there are, there's a high level of concern, which we have not heard before. And so, you know, we welcome additional safety measures in schools. Um, we expect the ones that we're calling for, which makes sense, which are in place in other jurisdictions, to also be acted upon. Right. So then today, later today, do you expect to hear like more measures? What do you think is going to happen? Well, I, I certainly hope that we hear information about what's happening in the schools because, you know, families and education workers have a right to know. Um, and, you know, it's, this is not a new problem. The issue of, of lack of transparency amongst what's happening in the schools is not new. But there's never been so little information, quite frankly. Um, and that's absolutely not helpful. And so I, I do expect to hear more about what's happening in schools. I hope to hear more clarifications in terms of what this order is intended to do. And, you know, certainly we would welcome those additional safety measures. In other words, why not give everyone in the system N95 masks if you're looking at functional closures as a, as a consequence of Omicron um, being spread in schools? And so it doesn't make sense that the measures that we're calling for are not in place. So you're saying, you know what, you feel this is the beginning of vaccine mandates in individual districts, but you'd rather just see the whole thing province-wide? We would. It would be so much more straightforward. It would treat all teachers the same, regardless of where they live. It would provide the same level of, uh, of safety, if you will, you know, across the entire province. It, it would be much more streamlined to do it provincially. It would take the... Um, really kind of significant pressure off individual school districts as well. And we're all in a pandemic right now. Everyone's, you know, operating at a high level of stress. And so it would really smooth the way for vaccine mandates if mm -hmm. it was a provincial health order. So we were surprised because, you know, all indications that we had is that the um, provincial health office was not willing to put in such mandates as, as what we even see right here. And so it's unfortunate that it's just not a little bit more clear about what the intention is. All right. Thank you very much for your time on that this morning. 
Thank you, Simi. Terry Mooring, president of the BC Teachers Federation. More answers we hope forthcoming 1.30 this afternoon with the uh, briefing with Dr. Henry and Health Minister Adrian Dix. You'll hear that live on the Jill Bennett Show. This is Mornings with Simi. You know, everything that lands on Earth from space tells a story. We just don't always hear all the details, but we are going to with this next item. Do you remember the story of that small meteorite that broke through a woman's ceiling? This was in Golden, um, oh, back in October, I think it was. It landed on her pillow right next to where she had been sleeping just moments earlier. Well, researchers have spent some time mapping this meteorite's journey, and so they know that this four-and-a-half-billion-year-old rock collided with something 470 million years ago. How do we know all this? Oh, I'm so curious to find out. Joining us now is Dr. Phil McCausland, who's in the Department of Earth Sciences at Western University. Dr. McCausland, thank you for being here. Good morning. This is so exciting. So tell me, where do you start? You have this object that lands on Earth. Where do you start? Uh, well, the first thing is is uh, basically talking with the person who found it. Uh, I guess you could say this one found Ruth Hamilton. Actually, found her, <laughs> landed right next to her. But basically, uh, she got in contact with us, um, wanting to know more about whether this was a meteorite and and perhaps what to do about it. Um, so going from there, basically, you get a. a, a get the chance to talk with the finder and you find out whether they're interested in having it studied scientifically and anything like this event, you know, this is a fairly spectacular event in the sense that it came through a roof and landed on our bed. But in general, with any kind of meteorite fall event, what we seek to do is to obtain a sample on loan and to work with it to try to identify what kind of meteorite it is, and if possible, get a subsample of the material to be able to then work on it further. Okay, so what kind of meteorite was this? Uh, it's a meteorite, it actually, it's pretty obvious from the pictures that she sent right away. It's, it, it's an ordinary chondrite. Um, it was very likely to be one anyway, and ordinary is the key word here. They're the most common type of meteorite to fall on Earth. Um, just year on year, the fall statistics are that something like 70 to 80% of meteorites that fall on Earth are, are ordinary chondrites. So they're a, a kind of meteorite that, as you mentioned in your intro, they're basically, they're stuff from the beginning of the solar system, and they've not been processed in any planet since then. So they're, they're made up of tiny glass spheres called chondrules. And uh, yeah, they formed about four and a half billion years ago. They're basically the dust and material out of which ultimately all of the planets were made. Right, but how can you tell that this little little rock collided with something else? And how can you say it was 470 million years ago? Okay, well, that is an extension. Basically, this particular type of chondritic meteorite, it's called an L chondrite. L meaning just it has low metal. And those type of meteorites... Um, studies on other L-chondrites have shown that a lot of them, although not all of them, show evidence of having had a uh, kind of a shock event 470 million years ago. That's known from radiometric dating of the minerals in the rock. Uh, basically tell us that it not only does it have the age of, it, like it's four and a half billion years old, but it also has this sort of shock event that happened to it, you know, 470 million years ago. So we surmise that this one probably will have a record like that as well, but we don't know that yet. 
In fact, that's the work that's coming up in the next few months is one of the things we're going to do is to chase that down and see if it does contain that kind of record too. And there's a lot of evidence on Earth for this event as well. We had The Earth received a shower of this kind of meteoritic material, L-chondrite material. There's a bunch of what are called fossil meteorites in limestone beds of that age around the world. So the Earth obviously saw a lot of this material from the asteroid belt then. Right, that's amazing. So you can link it to other objects that have fallen. But do you do, is this kind of research done for all of these objects that fall from the sky? Uh, it varies. Some of them it's done, uh, you know, most meteorites that fall or are found, uh, they'll have some work done on them to basically identify what they are. Um, and then if they're sufficiently interesting to follow up on, someone somewhere will follow up on it. In this case, what's warranting this kind of attention is not so much that it came through the roof of the roof of Ruth Hamilton's house and is exciting. You know, that's that's exciting and interesting, you know, for other reasons. Um, it's scientifically interesting because it was seen well enough by cameras and by video records in the area, eastern BC and Alberta, that we can reconstruct what the pathway through the atmosphere was and the time it took to do that. So therefore you can say what the orbit was before it hit the Earth. And there's only about 50 meteorites with that kind of information. So that scientifically, that automatically elevates it to be far more interesting and worth the effort to try to figure out its its history in the solar system. Well, that's kind of amazing that you can learn so much. How often does something like that happen in Canada? Um, there are a few events like this that have happened in Canada where meteorites with known orbits, um, there's basically four of them. Um, and they've all, you know, all of these kind of meteorites with known orbits have happened only over, with enough records, only over the past 50 years. Before then, really, we weren't keeping it in, in the world. We weren't keeping enough track of that. Um, but in Canada, uh, there is one in uh, in Tagish Lake in northern BC back in 2000. That one is a wonderful meteorite and uh, one with a known orbit. And then there are, are two other ones in Canada um, uh, three, actually, that uh, are all ordinary chondrites, and they all have known orbits as well. So that's all happened in the last, oh, 20 to 30 years. That's amazing. Okay, so then, Dr. McCausland, what's going to happen now? What are the next tests that you're going to run? What do you still hope to find out? Uh, the basic thing right now is we're establishing the, the type of meteorite. We have to essentially officially register it with the meteoritical bulletin, um, and so we have to provide the evidence that establishes that it's an L-chondrite. And, and from there, the work that follows now is to figure out, okay, what kind of shock history does it have? Does it have an, a, a record of this 470 event or not? Either way, it's interesting. And does it have a record uh, in it of how long it was in orbit, in its present orbit, before it hit the Earth? is what we call an evolved orbit. It's very interesting because it seems to have uh, detached from the asteroid belt. So it's no longer, um, in a physical sense, uh, dynamically associated with the asteroid belt, although it originally came from the asteroid belt, but the orbit doesn't seem to indicate that anymore. Right. So how did it get into this other orbit? That's So the work is going to be uh, working on um, the presence of noble gas ratios in the rock and its cosmic ray exposure history and that tells us what size of object it was and how long it was a relatively small like meter sized object in orbit around the sun right what does this tell us about kind of what's going on out there in space 
Um, that's really good as a question in that uh, ultimately, you know, this is a one-off event. So, you know, there's kind of a so what, okay, we get an orbit for this one and so what. But what's interesting about it is all of these meteorites that fall and all the smaller stuff that lands all the time and especially of interest to us from a hazard perspective, the bigger ones that happen from time to time, it's a continuum. So the more that we understand about the delivery mechanisms for getting these kind of materials to the Earth, the more then we'll understand about the near-Earth object population, particularly now the ones that are between 20 meters and a few hundred meters in size, which still right now cannot be found telescopically or tracked. But there's a lot of them out there, and that's actually where the main current uh, impact hazard for the Earth lies. So understanding more about the delivery mechanisms tell us more about how objects get into those kind of orbits that would become perhaps of interest or threatening to the Earth. So that it's, it's part of that larger story. Right, which is that we have a fascination with that, don't we? Whether it's like movies like Armageddon or Deep mm-hmm. Impact, we always are fascinated by the object that could hit the Earth. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, back nine years ago, there was this Chelyabinsk event in uh, in Russia where a 20-meter-sized object came in through the atmosphere in the morning and exploded over the city of Chelyabinsk. The atmosphere crushed it on the way in, basically. And it was 30 kilometers overhead, so it was way up there, but it was a half megaton blast, and it knocked out a bunch of windows and injured about a 1,000 people. Um, so, you know, these kind of events, they become more important to us as the object size increases. So we'd kind of like to know more about what's out there and, you know, more about physical properties, about what these things are made of and, and so on. Yeah, kind of. All right, we're going to have to check back in with you. Dr. McCausland, thank you for your time. Oh, you're welcome.